Hear the word of the Lord. But after he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. The next morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, who was David's seer. This was the message. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I will give you three choices. Choose one of these punishments and I will inflict it on you. So Gad came to David and asked him, will you choose three years of famine throughout your land, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of severe plague throughout your land? Think this over and decide what answer I should give the Lord who sent me. I'm in a desperate situation, David replied to Gad, but let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning and it lasted for three days. A total of 70,000 people died throughout the nation from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. But as the angel was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented and said to the death angel, stop, that is enough. At that moment, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong, but these people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and my family. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonah, and that's a weird passage of the Bible, so I'm going to talk about something else for a second just to avoid it. Um, so first off, a couple, couple reasons to be excited. Uh, y'all, we have toilets over there now, okay? Yeah, like real toilets. They're there. Um, they're still wrapped in plastic. So what we're going to do, um, we're going to have a little raffle to decide who gets to test drive it, you know? So just fill out a Connect card with like the top one or two reasons why you should be the one and uh, drop it in this box on your way out and we'll let you know if, uh, if you're the big winner, uh, so to speak. Uh, we've got a lot of exciting things other than toilets happening this week. Uh, and also with the renovations, uh, the the deadline was July 16th, in case anyone has forgotten. And so here we are way overdue. And uh, man, I'm just really thankful for you guys being patient. I, I, well, I'm told we're really close to the end. So I'm gonna tell you, we're probably close to the end. Uh, I was told it would, it would be done in October, um, a couple days ago. So we'll see. Uh, but thank you guys for hanging on and being patient. Uh, this week, two things I wanna point out. Uh, this Friday, we've got our Women's Night of Worship. Never done something like this before, and it's kind of a response at a celebration for just kind of this groundswell of ladies that have been showing up to this women's class and really cool stuff that's going. And so the, the ladies are going to gather on Friday night just to turn their hearts to the Lord, open the scriptures together, and be encouraged. Uh, the only real requirement to come that night is to be a lady. Um, sorry, guys. I don't know what we're going to do instead but the ladies will have a great time. Uh, come on out. It'll be fun. It's in your bulletin. And then Sunday, um, if you're in a community group and you don't know Sunday is trunk or treat, you should call your community group leader and be very angry with them uh, after church today. Next Sunday is trunk or treat. Uh, I hope you're buying candy, getting your trunks all ready. Uh, 
And I, I want to just remind us here for a second why we're doing this. Uh, trunk or Treat's become this like crazy church phenomenon in the last couple of years. And we started about five or six years ago because we did this neighborhood survey. We sent a lot of our deacons and members out into the neighborhood and asked them questions like, what's the best part about living here? What's the saddest part about living here? What do you miss about the way this neighborhood used to be? What do you hope this neighborhood will become? And over and over, we heard this theme of this used to be a safe neighborhood. We used to let our kids walk down the street. Uh, several times we, we heard neighbors, we asked about 100 or so neighbors, several times we heard things like, my kids used to be able to trick-or-treat in this neighborhood. And so we were thinking through how could we as a, as a church help create again this safe place here in the neighborhood where people can come and eat good food and not be worried and enjoy trick-or-treating without being worried about what's going to happen. So on the one hand, it's like, yeah, we're, we're trying to have fun and let people know what we're doing here in the neighborhood. But another, we want this church and our facility and this block or so here on Eakin and Silver Street to be a real tangible picture of what is the kingdom of God like for people so that when someone comes here, they can remember what does it feel like to be safe. And hopefully that can spill out through the neighborhood and we can push back the darkness that has crept into this neighborhood. Uh, and it's amazing the way the neighborhood has responded to this. Uh, we get messages on things like Facebook or email every year where someone who doesn't go to our church says, when is trunk or treat? Or, man, my kids look forward to this every year. It's become part of our family tradition. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful way that we can bless the neighborhood. And I, and I hope you guys all get excited and can participate in that with us. Uh, that being said, we can only avoid the Bible so long, I suppose. So that's my transition into this uncomfortable passage. Um, now, uh, there's much of the Christian life that, that probably should make us uncomfortable. Um, and I just want to be upfront and let you know there's things in the Bible that are strange. Uh, there are things in the Bible that are confusing and hard to understand. And if you're a visitor at this church, or you're like test driving this church, or whatever, or you're going to be here the rest of your life, um, I would just strongly encourage you to be very skeptical of anyone who claims to make perfect sense of everything in the Bible or has a nice, neat, tidy, straightforward answer for everything. Because if this is the word of God, which as a church, we believe it is, it's the revelation of who God is and what he's like and his character and plans. I sure hope you worship a God that's smarter than you. You know what I'm saying? Like there will be things about God and the way God works that won't make sense to us. You have no problem believing that with your children, right? Um, like, Earlier in the week, we were babysitting, and my son, who's about to be four, for, I, have no, I don't really know why, decided to take his pants off in the middle of the living room and just started laughing with like five other people in there. And it's hard to explain to a three-year-old why in life not everyone wants you to just like take your pants off in the middle of the room, right? But we expect him to listen to that. Uh, so if we expect that of our children, and you want a God who is actually God, not just a stronger version of yourself, uh, it's okay for God to be ways that we don't understand or to do things that don't make sense to us. So this passage is confusing. And if you miss the confusion, uh, let me explain it. Not what's confusing, but why is this confusing? Was that confusing? Yeah, see, that was totally intentional. It's a rhetorical flourish. Uh, so this, this is from chapter four of 2 Samuel. We're nearing the end of... Uh, David's life. And in the beginning of chapter 24, it says, God was angry at Israel again with a, a whole host of reasons. Uh, so 
Depending on your translation, it'll say he incites David, he makes David, he compels David. Uh, Somehow God gets the ball rolling for David to go and take a census, which makes God even more angry, right? So God's angry with David, and he decides in response to his anger to make David go do something that would only make him more angry. Strange. Uh, And what's even more strange is why is God, and if, if you're paying attention to what was read, and David, why are they so upset about people counting numbers? I mean, have you ever, I've just never had a census come back and people are like, Floyd County grew by 7%. I'm so angry, right? Like, what's the big offense here in a census? So there's some of that confusion to navigate. What's going on here? But the story, I think, pricks at something a little deeper than just that. Uh, the characters in the story feel the tension. Um, we, we see it again in these, the first 10 verses before we, we read. Uh, there's this guy named Joab who gets all worried and upset. Uh, Joab was one of the commanders of David's army. And if, if you read through or go back and listen to some sermons, uh, Joab was not a good man. He was kind of loyal to David, but Fundamentally, he was an assassin. He was a betrayer. His life was filled with violence and bloodshed. And so he comes to David after David said, hey, Joab, go count the people. Joab comes to David and he's afraid. In verse three, he says, but why, my Lord, the king, do you want to do this? There's anxiety there. There's concern. He's not, he's not so much worried about betraying and murdering his countrymen. Kill somebody? Got it, Dave. Like, I'll do whatever I need to do to protect David or to do the kingdom. No problem killing, murdering. But counting people is where I draw the line. (laughs) Like, very strange. After the census is complete, where we began our passage this morning, David says this, or we read this about David, verse 10. After he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. Uh, depending on what translation you're reading from, you'll get lots of variations of that word bother. This one is a little bit of a mild translation. Uh, It literally means this great Bible word to smite, smite, smoke, uh, to smite or to strike dead, okay? So think about this for a second. A couple weeks ago, we looked at David committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then he orchestrated the murder of her husband. And it required a prophet to receive a message from the Lord, this prophet to go tell a story with this surprise ending at the end to get David to realize what a big deal uh, this thing was. As soon as the numbers come back from a census, it's as if a lightning bolt has struck David in the soul. What is going on here? This is a strange chapter of the Bible. So if you step back for a second, I would argue that there's, there's kind of fundamentally two storylines of the Bible, these uh, counter themes that are running throughout Genesis to Revelations. On the one hand, we have humans that are striving to become more, something more than what we are. And you see this in the very first deception in the Garden of Eden, where Satan says, hey, if you guys disobey God, you can become like him. Think about all the lies that are wrapped up in there. What you are is not enough. Who you are is not enough. So if you do these things, you can become something bigger, better, more than what you are. A little while later, 
the people are saying the same thing. Tower of Babel. We're going to build this tower, so we'll go to heaven on our own. We'll get there by ourselves, and we'll make a name for ourselves. We'll be like God. Here in the life of David that we've been looking at, their expectations or their desires have gone down a little bit, and now they just wish to be like everybody else. So Israel was supposed to be a nation set apart, a light in the world to where you could say, how should human beings live? How should society function? What's the best way to be a human? Well, let's look at Israel. And then a little while ago, they're going around saying, we wish we were like everybody else. We wish we were like the other nations. So give us a king. And there's all kinds of warnings, all kinds of concerns that God shares with them and Samuel shared with them. But they say, no, no, no. Who we are is not enough. What we have is not enough. We want to be something more. And with that storyline, over and over, we see that people almost always take matters into their own hands. We want to itch that scratch. We want to satisfy that hunger on our own means, our own way. The counter story that runs alongside all of this rebellion theme in the Bible is simply put, the life of faith. It's, it's a life that's marked um, by trust, that we are creatures and have inherent limitations. Uh, think about, go all the way back to Genesis again. God creates a whole universe, which you realize we're not even sure how big it is now. With all of our technology, we're not really sure how big it is now. We think there's an edge to it. What's on the other side, right? Like we're surrounded by mystery now. In this huge universe, God makes a solar system. And then in that solar system, he makes one tiny little planet and says, that's gonna be the place where I put my people. In this huge planet, he makes a tiny little garden. And he says, I'm gonna make a human being who lives in this little space. And I'm gonna give him one companion, just one. And they're gonna be there in this garden, in this planet, in the solar system, in this universe. And he says, it's very good. It's very good that you have a body and can only do so much. It's very good that you can only live in one place. It's very good that you can only be with one person this way. The life of faith is a posture of trust that says, me and all my limitations are good. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Maybe fundamentally, it's a life that, that believes the more that we're looking for and hungering for, and listen now, is not position or possessions. Like how many of us are saying, if I just had this, if I could just get this job, if I just had this amount of money, if I just had this spouse, if I just had these kids, if my spouse was just a little bit different, if my kids were just a little bit different, if I had more kids, if I had less kids, if I had all these things, then, then the life of faith says, the more that I'm looking for is God himself, not positions or possessions. What will satisfy my soul is knowing God and being known by him. So the basic question of the Bible is, will you pursue more on your own terms or on God's terms? Will you trust yourself or will you follow God? The Bible shows us over and over and over again in nearly every story in this book that life on your own terms leads to death and destruction, but that a life of obedience to God produces deep relationship with God and satisfies the soul. Think about this in, in the life of David. He's had a front row seat to the destructive 
and dehumanizing power of sin. He's seen what happens when we turn from God and trust our own plans. And on the flip side, he's seen how God comes through in seemingly impossible ways. He watched Saul fight the will of God and cling to his own plans, uh, trying to hold tightly to his own power. There's this turning point in, in the rule of Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where God says to Saul, go wipe out those people. Don't take any treasure. Don't keep anything. They've got to go. And Saul goes, and then he's looking at all the cash laying around, all the stock market bonds and stuff like that, which were sheep back then, right? Like he's, he's looking at all of this wealth, and he says, surely we could do something with this. So he, he brings a little bit back with him. He churches it up a little bit and says, you know, I'm going to use this for God. I'm going to give some of this to the church. Look at all the great things we could do to help all the poor people. But God had forbidden Saul from keeping anything. Instead of obedience, Saul does what he wants to do. Saul trusts his plans. And at that moment, God removes his hand from Saul. And you see this downward trajectory. The problem was David had not learned from Saul. He had not watched what happens when you fight the will of God. He had not believed the danger in trusting yourself over God. And, and remember, this is the king of Israel. He is to be the leader of the people who are to be a light unto the nations. The problem is not so much that David counted his army here as what that represented. See, the boy David believed that God would rescue him against Goliath. And so he runs out into the field of battle. Over and over, we see this posture of trust in David that God will provide for him. God will make a way for him. God will take care of him. But then David gets some power. The major conflicts are over. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom have been reunited. David's reigning pretty well. He's wiping other people out. He's got this unstoppable force. And now all of a sudden... Instead of trusting in God, believing that the Lord would protect him, David begins thinking that, you know, maybe it's, maybe I'm just really good at slinging stones and that's how I killed Goliath. Maybe it's really my battle strategy and my wisdom that has allowed us to win all of these conflicts. There's this, this confidence in himself that has risen up in David. And so he starts trusting in his own strength. Why do you want to know how big your armory is? Well, to figure out how strong you are figure out how safe you are. God had commanded David, do not have a standing army. Is that because God is dumb? No. It, if your interpretation of the Bible leads you to conclude God is dumb, you have not interpreted it properly. Over and over, God says, I will be your shield. I will be your strength. I will be your refuge. Look to me. I will take care of you. And listen, there is no army that is a threat to the living God. He protected uh, a huge crowd of slaves from the strongest army in the world without a single weapon. What did he do? Well, in this case, he sent plagues and then he had a tornado of fire come from heaven and then he split an ocean in half. Like, there is no army that is a threat to God. But for David, he's turned from the Lord. David clearly disobeys God. 
And this story shows us what happens, the indications, uh, maybe the symptoms of a heart that has drifted from the Lord. We take matters into our own hands, and so often we get the exact opposite of what we want. It can be safe to pick apart Old Testament characters. When I feel sad, I sometimes read the Gospels because I like to think the disciples were kind of dumb, and I read that and see the dumb things they did and feel better about myself. Um, But this drifting from the Lord in subtle ways, even when we have good reasons, it's not an old-fashioned thing that happens. Uh, Some of you are drifted right now. Some of you feel that tug right now or this past week. this This is a today struggle. So what does it look like? How do we know? What are the symptoms if our heart is drifting? Because I'm going to talk about it a little bit here, but notice in both Saul's example and David's, at least superficially, they had kind of compelling reasons to do it. And some of you have self-deceived yourself. You've, You've lied to yourself or believed your own lie that what you're doing is good, even though it's disobeying the Lord. So what are some indications? The first, we pursue agreement instead of obedience. But put a little bit another, another way, uh, before we'll obey, we must agree with God and understand God. Now, functionally, most of us uh, know that obedience does not require agreement. If you've had a three-year-old in your house, you know this. There, there are things that must be obeyed that you may not agree with or understand. So again, in this story, Saul had good so-called religious reasons for not agreeing with God, some that you would probably agree with. Why let all this money waste in the field when we can do really good religious stuff with it? Well, gosh, Saul, you're right. I don't, we probably should. Think of how many Reese cups we could buy with all that money, Saul, or whatever. David had really good practical reasons for disobeying God. Well, if we don't know how big our army is, how can we keep us safe? And you know the whatever, the Amalekites might come back because they're all upset about what happened. Or these people, we, we got to know how big our army is so we can position it. And, and we just want to keep everybody safe. It's not that I diso- I, I don't, I'm not so much disobeying God. I'm trying to be faithful to God because I'm king and I'm supposed to save the people. And, and most of us would be like, yeah, that sure makes a ton of sense, Dave. We cannot always understand God. Thanks be to God. He would not be much of a God if we could understand everything he does all the time, if he's actually holding the whole universe together all at once. We we cannot always understand God, and I promise you, you will not always agree with what he asks you to do. Obedience is a posture of trust that believes all God's ways lead to life. Not always agrees with them or always makes sense to me, But whatever the Lord asks me to do, whether it be by his spirit, through his people, or in his word, all God's commands lead to life. Obedience leads to joy, even when I don't understand it. If you find yourself needing to agree with God before you will obey him, that's an indicator that your soul has drifted. If you demand God makes sense to you before you listen to him, You are drifting, even when you have good reasons, like David does. 
So maybe the, maybe the diagnostic question is, do you need to agree with God before you'll obey him? If we let that cook long enough in our kind of modern rational mindset that God must make sense and I'll obey as long as I agree with what he tells me to do. If you let that cook long enough, something, something deeper happens and, and we see it playing out here in David. We'll begin striving for clarity instead of communion. We want explanations and answers over relationship. David wanted a number and he put his trust in that number instead of God. Kind of the diagnostic here. How, how often do you need to know why before you'll do something for God, before you'll agree to something? How often do you man, to demand explanation from God before you will follow him? Here's one of the beautiful things about the Bible. This is my favorite church joke, I think, and you probably won't laugh. That's okay. Uh, how many of you want to know God's plan for your life? One person. We need to, like, get more uh, participation here in church. We're all so just white and uncomfortable. You know, we're just sitting here like, oh, please don't look at me. This is like the, the driving ethic of Southern Indiana is don't rock the boat. So everyone is like, who doesn't want to be on fire? And I'm like, I'm not going to do it first. I'm not going to raise my hand first. Yeah, right? Like all of us, to some degree, are laying in bed at night saying, what do you want from me? Right? Okay, I'm going to answer it for every single one of you. This is the beautiful simplicity of the Christian message, okay? God's big plan for your life is to know you and be known by you, period. So does that mean I can go be a welder? Go, do it. Does that mean that I can go try to be an English major? I guess, you know, like, you can try. Like, in other words, God is far less interested in all these, like, behaviors and activities you do, and more so whether or not you're in communion with him, um, whether or not you know him and you allow him to know you. So another way to put what I'm talking about here is, do you want everything to make sense or do you want God? Like when the confusion comes, when, when the letdowns of life come and the curveballs come, are you there demanding, why, why, why? I must have clarity. Or are you crying out in the night, God, I need you. Look, look at the Psalms of David over and over. My soul pants for you like a deer pants for water. Do you want clarity or do you want God? David's own convictions begin breaking him where he needed this certainty. He had his, this trust in his numbers, but then he has this recognition that he's drifted. He experiences conviction. The prophet Gad comes to him and says, you got three options, David. Option one, you can be attacked by foreigners. Option two, you can experience famine. Option three, you can get a plague from the Lord. It's so fascinating where a few verses earlier, David's saying, I need to know the numbers. I need to know how big my army is. I will be in charge of this thing. And now there's this open-handedness that comes. So in verse 14, he says, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into human hands. You see what he's saying? Like, I, I want God. I'm gonna trust God. I wanna know God. I'm gonna rely on God. You don't even need to tell me how this is gonna go. Pick a different one. Pick whatever one you want, but I'm going to trust 
the Lord. His hands become open and accepting to the mystery that is life with God. He's choosing God over certainty, over clarity. In all of our circumstances, God is what we need most of all. All the things we want, I'm not saying any of them are necessarily bad. Some of them may be. But we have to pursue these things or try to maintain these things knowing that the only thing that will satisfy that more that we're longing for is knowledge of God, being with God, experiencing God. And if that's the case, it empowers us to enter into the mystery of real life because trusting and obeying God so often feels like walking in the fog. Anybody been there? You're like, God, I swore this is what you wanted me to do. Or your word says to do this and it just doesn't make any sense. Think about it. If you want God more than you want answers or clarity, you can trust that he's there in the fog. You you can go into the confusion and mystery with joy and gladness because you want God, not just need explanations or, or wonderful circumstances. Do you demand clarity instead of communion? Do you want answers more than you want God? It's an indication that your heart has drifted. And then finally, and perhaps most destructive, when all of this takes root, and we don't turn from it, we haven't addressed it, we've just let it foster, we will begin demanding control instead of crucifixion. We want a life on our terms, our way. And if, if, maybe if you hear anything this morning, I hope you hear me pleading with you to see that that is killing you. We must see that pursuing life on our way, in our way, by our terms, is the most destructive thing you can do. Saul, and it, it will keep you from getting the thing that you want. Saul wanted to stay in power or at least preserve his authority. So he clings tightly to his rule, to his throne, and it literally causes him to lose his mind. He goes crazy in the process and ends up losing the throne and dying in disgrace in the middle of a field. The way he goes about clinging to his throne, clinging to his own plans and desires, causes him to lose the very thing he wants. David, well, you got to keep my people safe. Got to keep them free from harm. So let's count the troops, even though God said not to. He wanted control over his kingdom and to keep it safe. And the way he went about doing that brought it destruction. It caused him to lose the very thing he wanted to gain. When we cling to life on our terms, by our means, we will lose the very thing we want. And this this is playing out every day in our church and in our community groups. So here's another opportunity for crowd participation. Who here wants other people to like them? Yeah, some of you, right? (laughs) I'm trying. I'm really trying. (laughs) Okay, so think about this. I think that's okay. I don't think that's sinful or we like talking about fear of man and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's true. But I also think we're made for community. It's okay to want to be liked. But when that gets out of control, when that spins and becomes exaggerated, what do we do? You ever wear ridiculous clothing because that's what all your friends wore? Anybody remember Jenko jeans a couple years ago? That was in middle school for me. Or have like crazy haircuts. Remember when like the little teeny tiny mohawks were in? Or like 
Anybody drink beer with a lot of hops in it? Don't raise your hand, we're at church, right? <laughs> Why do we drink that? Well, everyone, it's the cool thing, right? It's the hipster thing, right? Like, like we do all these things because somehow it gets popular and we think this is what we have to do to fit in. So we take who we really are, what our interests really are, and we tuck them down deep down here. And we put the right haircut on with the right drinks and the right outfit and the right jokes and the right music. And we do this so that we feel liked by everybody. And then no matter how many friends you have or how popular you become, you remain desperately lonely. And you know what I hear all the time in our church? I mean, all the time are people saying things like this. I'm, I'm so afraid that if anyone really knew me, they wouldn't like me. I mean, that is one of the loneliest things a person can say. But what is, what is being communicated there? I've tried so hard to be liked. I've hidden my own self away, and I'm terrified that no one actually likes me. You, you see that? When we cling to how will I be liked, I'll fit in with the crowd. This is what everyone else says. I'll go to the gym, and I'll get this haircut, and I'll drive this car, and I'll do this thing. And it leaves us feeling so deeply lonely. What about money? Oh, my gosh, here we go. Church talking about money. So many of us look to money for security. This is what will keep us safe. This is what will make me feel like I've arrived or done something. So what do we do? We work hard and we save and you do all the things, right? You do the Dave Ramsey thing and you listen to him every day and you follow it. And you know what I see happen whenever people get money? I'm in this weird stage of life where like the guys I went to college with have money now, which is weird, you know what I mean? Uh, What happens when you start getting money? This fear creeps up that wasn't there before. There's this fear when you have money uh, that you don't have when you're poor. And, And that's the fear of, what if I lose my money? I look for all this money, and I trust that it'll make me safe. And now I've got all this money, and I'm terrified that I'll lose it. You don't feel any more safe. You're just scared of something different now. On and on it goes. We could do this for the next two hours. The point is, the harder you pursue life on your terms, the quicker you will lose the thing you want. Listen to how Jesus describes this. It's one of the strangest passages in the New Testament. This is a strange passage Sunday. Maybe you've been confused by this in the past. Verse, uh, Matthew 16, verse 25. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. If you step out of the story of God, leave this up there for a second. If you step out of these themes of the Bible and someone came to you, a a late show, you know, doing the man on the street interview said, do you think trying to hang on to your life is a good idea? How many of us would be like, absolutely, it's the only one I've got. Absolutely, we should hang on to our life. I just need some me time. I just need to do something for myself. Amen, sister, right? How many people, if you said, what will happen if you lose your life? You say, well, I don't know. Everything would fall apart. But if you come into the story of God, Jesus says, you have to give up your way of being you if you want to truly be alive. This is what separates David from Saul in these stories. David repents. He turns from his plans. In verse 10, Uh, He says, I've sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. I was an idiot. I was misguided. 
I don't need explanations. I won't even choose my fate. Instead, I will trust your mercy, Lord. I will follow your ways, even if it's foggy. Verse 17, he accepts crucifixion. He accepts a death to himself instead of control. I am the one who has sinned and done wrong, but these people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and my family. I will take responsibility. I will lay down my life. I will lay down my plans. I will experience the death of my dreams. I will experience the death of what I've longed for. And I instead, I will trust your mercy. I want to know you, God, more than I want my plans. The life of faith demands you to come and die. We must accept crucifixion, death to self, not as an act of penance or as a way to make up for God, but rather from a deep awareness. Listen now, that your way of living is killing you. For so many of us, this life that we want to hold on to is the thing that is killing you and bringing death into your life. There's something subtle but incredibly beautiful happening here. The angel of death is going around wiping people out in Jerusalem or in, in Israel, and he gets to Jerusalem, the capital. And God shouts to this angel, Enough! That's enough! He stops him before getting to Jerusalem. He's on the threshing floor of this farmer named Aruna. And there God has compassion on Jerusalem. So David builds an altar there and they sacrifice animals. So the blood of animals are spilled instead of the blood of David, his family, or his countrymen. Uh, If this place sounds familiar to you, well, back in the book of Genesis, there's a man named Abraham. Let's throw another confusing passage out there. God says to Abraham, I want you to go to this place, this same place, believe it or not, the same place where Aruna's threshing floor is. And God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. What? And Abraham says, okay, okay. Ties the son up. What was that like? Lays the son on an altar. And as he's about to, to stab his son. The knife is raised. God shouts, enough, stop, wait, stop, and provides a sacrifice there so that someone else's blood can be spilled instead of Abraham's or his son's. After this scene, David's son Solomon would build the temple in this spot where people would come and bring their guilt before the Lord and animals would be killed there so that they wouldn't have to be. There's a cry for help, saying, please, Lord, spare us. To this same spot, eventually, one of David's descendants would come. He would look at our self-destruction. He would look at your cycles of killing yourself and remaining enslaved to sin and foolishness. And he would look at us and say, enough. And so in obedience, Jesus, the great shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep to spare us from the judgment we deserve for our rebellion. In obedience. You know, Jesus was a little bit confused here that he says to the Lord before going to the cross, if there is any other way to do this, I am for it. If there's any other way we can make your plans work, God, I would prefer it. But I will trust you and I will follow you. 
even though his heart never drifted, he would receive the judgment we all deserve for our rebellion. And so in faith, Jesus, a perfect sacrifice, poured his life out on the cross for us. Yes, to spare us from death, but also to secure the promises of the Bible that every crucifixion leads to resurrection. If you want to experience resurrection life, if, if you want to be free from your self-destruction, then as the old song would tell us, come and die and find that you may truly live. Do you want to be alive enough? Do you want to be free enough to believe that Christ died for you? That you have nothing left to prove? That you have no guilt left to atone for? But instead you can turn and experience a new beautiful life. You can experience the commands of God, not as something to perform, but rather as an invitation into the best way to be a human being. The, the best way to obey is to repent and trust today. Are you confused? You know what God wants you to do, but it doesn't make sense to you? Are you lingering in the back of your head? with all of these questions and thoughts, even though you feel like you have a strong sense of what God is calling you to do, the best way to obey is repent. Turn from your way of being you and trust God today. You have nothing to prove. You've been saved already. You are secure already. You are safe already. Obedience is the pathway to the best way of being human. It's the best way to know God and experience relationship with him that will satisfy your soul. And so we come, we gather, fundamentally, to be reminded, why do we trust God? Why should we listen to him? Why can we follow him? And that's why we come to communion. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he thanked God, broke bread, and said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. Remember that at the cross, Outside of Jerusalem, Jesus said, enough, no more. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to hide anymore. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. If you want to know, am I liked? Am I loved? The body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. The only voice in the universe that matters looks at you and says, I want you. And nothing can change that. You're good enough. You're safe. You're okay. Not because of anything you have to offer, but because the love of God was so deep for you, so passionate for you, that Christ came and died for you. If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, that is the question you must wrestle with. Go entertain all the other religions out there but you will have to do business with the God who bled for you, who came down and lived perfectly for you, who suffered for you, who knows what it's like to be betrayed and rejected and lonely and isolated and abandoned. And despite all of that, he said, I will bleed for you. I will lay down my life for you. What will you do with someone who loves you that much? Will you trust and obey? Have you done enough to know that the way you do you is not very good? If you're here and you're a Christian, before coming forward, take a moment and just try to identify where have you drifted? Where are you holding on to agreement instead of obedience? Clarity 
instead of communion, control instead of crucifixion. Where is God inviting you to trust him today? Turn from your own ways. Look again at Christ who's been killed for you and who's resurrected for you and trust him and obey him. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward. We'll have stations in the back as well. You can rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and we'll have uh, gluten-free elements to my left, your right. Tear off a piece, dip it in whichever you'd like. I'll pray for us and then uh, Christians, you may participate in communion after I'm done. Let's pray.